Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. My friends and I stared down the barrel of an AR-15 the way you have not. We have seen this weapon of war mow down people we know and love the way you have not. How dare you tell us we don't know what we're talking about? Never again should a student be silenced by gunshots. Never again should anyone fear going to school. The time for change wasn't now. The time for change was years ago. Are you for taking steps to save us or are you for taking NRA blood money? We are not letting the United States be run by that terrorist organization. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. You just heard it there. A number of students getting together, uh, students, teachers, coaches, counselors, getting together at schools across the country, from what I understand, but particularly those who are involved uh, directly in Florida, speaking out there. There's now a broader movement to involve other schools. There's talk about a a walkout um, that may may be occurring this is from uh, this is expected to be occurring perhaps later on Um, you have students that are gathering together saying that it's time to change our gun laws we addressed this a bit yesterday and there's something going on here it's not normal to expect that there would be so much vitriol let's understand this I, i get it you have Students that are traumatized, specifically, we're talking now about those who were actually at the high school in Parkland when this mass shooting happened. And I I understand that there's a psychological trauma to be dealt with, that the community needs to come together, that these students deserve our support. Then I hear that there's also similar efforts to get students activated in their political activism across the country it makes me think okay so this is now turning into a movement or they're trying to turn it into a movement hmm what is so different about this time and this incident from others i'm asking the questions i don't necessarily have the answers but what is it about this incident specifically that makes these students that are speaking up and and being given considerable airtime by the national news media. What is it that makes them so angry, specifically toward the NRA? The NRA is the focus of so much of the anger here, the National Rifle Association. I remember being a high school student, and I would not have pretended to know much at all about the NRA or what it does. Um, We're also seeing a very clear effort in the media to create a, an invulnerability for the speech of students that were either at that school or just now any student who comes forward and wants to speak on behalf of those students is also going to be given this, the same 
invulnerability for their comments and statements. It doesn't have to be accurate, doesn't have to be true, doesn't have to make sense, because it comes from a place of victimhood. Because they've been victimized, because a group of students were murdered in cold blood by a psychopath. And I haven't really heard enough of that word used. And I I think I'd like to return later in the show into why I use it and what some of the real implications are for our understanding of this mass slaughter Uh, when we use terms like psychopath. We should also use terms like evil and understand how it applies in this case. I don't mean in a general sense. I mean in, in as scientific a way as possible. Evil as a term used by those who spend their lives trying to understand the psychological processes of the brain can't come up with a coherent or rational explanation for why an individual acts the way he or she does and is left with nothing more on a clinical level than the diagnosis, a diagnosis of evil. That, I think, is far and away the most accurate description of Nicholas Cruz and what occurred on that day. And I can return to more specificity on that in a moment. But the, the ire, the fury of these students is directed toward the National Rifle Association as the bad guy here. The National Rifle Association. Um, that the students are young, that they can't vote, that they don't have a background or even a baseline. Forget about a background. No one's expecting you have to have a Ph.D. in gun studies to have an opinion here. But it is usually a necessity in a national-level policy discussion to have a baseline of knowledge about the issue. Right? If I were running around and I were 16 years old and I said that I wanted us to have a, a much lower tax rate, and somebody asked me, well, do you know what the, the top tax rate is right now? And I said, I have no idea, 90%. People would be less likely to take my policy proposal seriously. In this in- instance, though, because they have suffered a tragedy or because a community, a school, has suffered a tragedy, we are to listen without responding. And that's actually not how policy discussion works. It's not how the First Amendment works. It's not how we could arrive at any constructive solutions to this problem. Uh, Nobody really wants to be lectured by a group of kids that seem very angry at an organization that has nothing to do with what just happened. It is not the fault of the NRA. I would note that if you're going to blame the NRA, you might as well blame the manufacturer of the rifle and claim that they are the ones responsible for this. The seller of the gun, even though he did it completely legally, he must be responsible for this. The person that manufactured the rounds used, the actual ammunition, they're they're responsible for this. No, 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 no. You, You cannot erode moral culpability here in the name of some political agenda. The only person responsible for the heinous acts in Florida last week is Nicholas Cruz. There are people who... Could have done more to stop it. There is certainly a discussion that we are having now about what should have been done to stop it. But I'm not seeing a lot of reasonable, good faith discussion in the national media about what should 
result from this in terms of law, changes to law. No, what I'm seeing is the vilification of an organization that just represents law-abiding gun owners, of whom there are, as you know, tens of millions, let's say roughly 60 million in the country, a pretty fair estimate, over 300 million firearms in private hands in the United States is also the estimate. So you've got 60 million people. You've got a handful of terrible school shootings. It seems to me like we're now supposed to just sit back and allow the left, because we know that there is a hand behind this. We know that the media is part of this construct and part of this narrative to cast aspersions, to cast blame on 60 million law-abiding gun owners here. And much of the intelligentsia, uh, such as it is on the left, is coming out with the same stuff they've said in the past. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. But they think that by emotionalizing the moment, by making this a time of emotional blackmail, listen to the sobbing children on this policy issue or else you're a bad person. Then the ideas and arguments that have failed in the past will get through because we'll all be scared because we don't want to be bad people because we are caring, because we are considerate, because we do want our kids to be safe. We want all kids to be safe. Notice how the issue somehow becomes a separation between those who want to stop child, uh, stop the shootings in school, school shootings, and those who don't. There's no such thing as a constituency that doesn't want to stop school shootings. So why is that the tone that this takes almost automatically after one of these events, after one of these instances? We're hearing that students are planning more protests and walkouts from class. Well, I'd like to know what the specific demands are here, but I would also note that this is not how policy is made. Yeah, they're allowed to raise whatever objections they want, right? They have First Amendment rights, too. We, we know this. But what the media is doing is very underhanded. And what many of the supporters of the narrative that's being presented, which is that the NRA is the problem here. Forget about dealing with mental health. Forget about background. Forget about all that. The NRA is the problem. They want to, they want to take down and take apart the National Rifle Association. And there's just no way that there aren't elements of the left, adults with money and funding and connections who are tied into this. I just don't see how it, I mean, at a minimum, you've got the major broadcast networks other than Fox that are just running with this as though they are a political action committee, CNN, MSNBC and others. So right then and there, I can tell you that they're giving a lot more airtime to young people on this issue than they would young people on other issues. As I said, you do not tend to hear a lot of interviews of the families of those killed by illegal aliens in this country on CNN. CNN anchors do not ask the children of those killed by illegal aliens on TV as they are crying. What do you think about illegal? Should we have fewer illegal aliens in the country crying child who lost his dad to a drunk driver, illegal alien who's been deported, you know, 15 times or whatever the number is? No, they don't do that because they're forming narratives and they don't like that one. This one they like the notion that the NRA is behind a mass slaughter of children at a school, a school shooting. It is deceptive, it's disgusting, it's unfair, and yet 
That's the plan. They figure that if they're able to create an environment of fear, then the arguments don't really matter anymore. This is where the left actually excels at promoting a, a, an approach to an issue, a, a feeling, a sensibility around it, where it's not about the specific issues or the arguments. It's just about, oh, I, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. To borrow from Obama, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, as he used to constantly say. So now, all of a sudden, we're seeing the, the first breaches in the wall. We're seeing the breaks in the dam. You're seeing people that are saying, hold on, maybe, you know, okay, fine. This time, we'll, we will do something. The administration sounds like they're, they're going to do something. Is it because we've come up with new ideas? Maybe. There are some that I haven't really heard much of before, and we'll talk about them. But is it really just another instance of the left creating an environment of moral blackmail? You better be with us on this. You better do what we say on this issue or you're a bad person or you don't care about children getting shot. That is the underlying message of the left right now. And whether you know or not that their policy or that the an assault rifle ban or background check expansion or any of this is useless is irrelevant because you don't want to be a bad person. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. This is what they're trying to do right now. They've tried it in the past. It has failed. Will it fail this time on the issue of guns? It's worked on other things. I mean, you, you look at the context for discussion of any number of issues. I mean, you, you look at what the left did by weaponizing discussions of race and racism for political purposes over the course of decades. Very effective for them. It finally started to, they finally kind of overplayed their hand in the last, uh, you could argue, 10 or 15 years maybe, where it didn't have the same accusations of racism didn't have the same punch as they used to. Now, there are other things that are career enders for people that are just weaponized politics, right? Accusations in place of argument. They're trying to do that on guns right now. It's not about having a, an exchange of ideas about a Second Amendment, about the right to bear arms. No, it's are you a good person? Or, do, you want, do you want children to not be shot in school, yes or no? If the answer is yes, you don't want them to be shot in school, then you have to do then you have to give the left its gun control agenda. You have to cave, you have to give in. No questions asked. Well, I'm not I'm not playing that game. I'm not going along with that. I want policy that's based on reason and argument and sound logic. And no, I'm not going to be cowed into silence because people have suffered a personal tragedy or we're, we're near a tragedy in the case of many of these students. That, that gives you sympathy. It does not give you a greater understanding and wisdom about national level policy than other people. It just doesn't. And I think the media's shameless exploitation of tragedy involving minors, tragedy involving children here is just yet another reason why we should ha- we should always maintain a healthy disrespect and disdain for the mainstream media. I'll be uh, I want to know what you think about all this. We're going to get into the specifics that are out there. 844-900-2825-844-900 buck bump stock ban. What do you think? AR15 ban if you're under 30. What do you think? Improving background checks, whatever that means. You know, we can go down this whole list. We'll talk about some of them. 
I want to know what you think as well. So light up the lines. We'll be right back. Those talking about how we should have not ostracized him. You didn't know this kid. Okay, we did. We know that they're claiming that there are mental health issues, and I am not a psychologist, but we need to pay attention to the fact that this isn't just a mental health issue. He wouldn't have harmed that many students with a knife. How about we stop blaming the victims for something that was the shooter's fault? I don't think anyone's blaming the victims. I don't really know what that young woman who's being given a national media platform is referring to. Uh, but you'll notice from the tone of some of the students that they are uh, angry and they are expressing some of them, the ones that I'm seeing that are getting airtime. Remember, this reminds me of after 9-11. A lot of people that were affected by 9-11. I remember being at school, finding out whether I was in college, finding out whether or not my uncle made it out of one of the towers. Didn't know for the first few hours. A friend of mine a young woman I had known since I was in the fourth grade found out that day that her sister had died. And I was there at the school, you know, when, uh, when the news came down. Um, but I also remember that there were people who decided that it was time to start cutting campaign commercials for the Democrat party and for John Kerry and saying, you know, see, it was Bush's fault. And then when you'd say, well, hold on a second, well, hold on. Whoa. It's like, Oh, how dare you? You know, these remember the, the whole, and I'll, I'll do credit to Ann Coulter for being the one who's willing to say, hold on, these, these aren't the 9-11 widows. These are four widows of 9-11. There's a lot of other, a lot of other widows and uh, widowers and, you know, children lost their parents. It's a, you know, we're not hearing from them. We're just hearing from the four and they're representative of the whole group. Always be careful about this. You know, media is very slippery on this issue. When it comes to exploiting tragedy for political ends, there are the producers and the bookers on these shows at CNN, MSNBC. They are making decisions based upon who's going to give them the most anti-Trump, anti-NRA shout fest. So then their sanctimonious, ignorant anchors can go, oh, you don't feel like the children's tragedy deserves to be heard and the whole thing. We know how the game is played. We know how they're doing this. And this is what they're up to. By the way, I mentioned before, the, uh, I stumbled for a second because I wanted to make sure I had the right date. I'm seeing there's a plan. There are plans going forward for a major march uh, akin to, in terms of size, the Women's March. It'll be an anti, uh, anti-gun anti march. I don't know what if they have a, an official name yet. A gun control legislation march or, you know, whatever they're going to call it. for march, uh, A march on March 14th. And there are others as well. And they've got tens of thousands of people signing petitions. And this is now becoming a point of political mobilization and action for the uh, Democrat left. You're also seeing stuff like a billboard in Louisville, Kentucky, that somebody vandalized with huge writing. It says, kill the NRA. So there's something wrong here, my friends. We are going to dig into it together. And uh, we'll talk more about what's happening right after this break. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. And I 
think that it's really important that we come together now since adults are not doing it for us. I remember the first time I heard about Sandy Hook. I remember talking about Virginia Tech. This time will be different because the people who were deeply affected by the shooting, the people who saw it, are the people speaking out. Because we keep telling them that if they accept this blood money, they're against the children. They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS! I, we could just play all day news clips of teenagers, kids, who are telling us what gun control policy should be, saying things about gun laws that are not true. I couldn't believe yesterday CBS left up the tweet about how it's easier to get an AR-15 than to buy cold medicine. That's not just fake news. It's malicious news. They're really trying to turn up the heat on this problem, turn up the heat on the debate, make this nasty, make it not a problem that we have to solve as a country, as a as a nation, make it a us versus them. You heard it in that young woman. She said, you know, it's either you're with the children or you're against them, with them or against them. This is a this is a repeat. You'll hear more and more of that. You either want to stop child murder in school or you don't. That's what they'll say. But there's no one who wants kids to get shot in school. No one. So what are they talking about? Why do they have to be so inflammatory? Here's something to keep in mind, my friends, as we go forward and continue to cover this. How is it that the passions on this issue are even more elevated right now with greater distance from the actual event than they were in the first 48 hours? Why are the kids that are speaking about this becoming more aggressive? Why are we seeing signs kill the NRA in Louisville now? Why are we hearing these refrains like you're with the children or you're against them? You either want to stop child murder in school or you don't. Now, days after the event, I just think it stands to reason that if this were based on the emotions of the moment, you would hear the most over-the-top inflammatory rhetoric and these accusations against the NRA, you'd hear it more in the beginning and then it would turn into a policy debate. But no, actually, you're hearing this stuff now. It's getting worse. The anger, the rage from one side of the political spectrum to the other over guns is escalating as we have distance from the event. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Unless... Unless there is a guiding hand behind this, unless there's more going on here than just spontaneous student protests over gun control and and gun violence. I'm not saying that these kids don't believe it. I'm sure they do. But then again, there's a reason why we don't let 16 year olds vote on national policy issues. There's a reason why they don't get to pick our representatives. And there's a, a basis for all of that. You know, the. Voting age should be 16. Maybe it should be 12. Should we have five-year-olds voting? We have journalists who seem to think that it was respectable and responsible to use their children as props, as anti-Trump attack vessels. You know, my daughter came up to me and said, why does Donald Trump hate women, mommy? And she's only three. I don't think that your daughter said that at three. But a lot of journalists were doing that. Those of you who were paying close attention to the, uh, the commentariat, uh, during the election, we'll remember that was a trend for a while. 
well, there's a trend going on here, but it seems that it's getting angrier as we get further from the event. And I don't believe it's because of inaction. In fact, I think that the Trump administration has shown, I know they have shown quite a willingness to discuss these issues and look at them. Here's the president himself. Safety is a top priority for my administration. That is why when governors from across the nation visit the White House next week, we will be discussing at great length what the federal and state governments can do to keep our students safe. This includes implementing common-sense security measures and addressing mental health issues, including better coordination between federal and state law enforcement to take swift action when there are warning signs. The president's taking this issue very seriously. He's listening to what's being said. He's going over the proposals that are out there now. He says state and federal and local, we're, we're working on it. We are. He's not saying there's nothing. I'm not going to hear it. Everything is fine. And yet you turn on the news and you'll hear students who are being elevated into the national discussion who are saying stuff like. To the president. And I think that it's really important that we come to the president. The ball is in your court now. You are either with us or you are against us. If you are against us, then that means you are signing our death certificates. You are letting more children die every day. There is no middle ground here. You are either with us in helping children survive, helping children feel safe to go to school, or you are against us. We are very confident because unlike every other instance You you got the idea. That was a 17-year-old. Mr. President, you're with us, you're against us. You're signing children's death certificates if you don't ban AR-15s. That's really... That's what we're supposed to take away from this. That's quite a lot of culpability, a lot of blame that's put on the president for something that he has nothing to do with. Keep in mind that Congress would have to pass the legislation first, and yet it's all put at the feet of Trump. You see, this is what's really happening here, everyone. Do we think that there would be quite the same tone, quite the same approach if you had a Democrat president? No, of course not. This issue of guns is now being tied into the issue of hashtag resistance. Gun control is now being hijacked by the left, by the institutional left. The money, the movers and shakers, the Soroses, the MSNBCs, the CNNs and the rest of them. In order to mobilize the progressive elements of our society against the Trump administration in yet another way. It's yet another front of the never-Trump, anti-Trump war. It immediately becomes about the president, and that's why there's so much fury behind this movement and this effort right now. That's what's different from this school shooting versus other school shootings. And, And you have a president who's willing to say, we should actually address this in whatever way we can. Let's talk about it. And they're saying, oh, no, you're, the blood is on the president's hands. There's a particular anger right now. There's a particular rage about gun control because Donald Trump is president. That's what's going on here in the background. I'm not saying that that's what's got all these students fired up. Some of them are, I'm sure, being told things by adults. Others are being 
uh, are being encouraged to whatever their initial impulse is about this. And a lot of them are, I'm sure, I mean, the ones from the school. Keep in mind, I'm talking about in general because this is now a movement. This is beyond the school. So now we've got to listen to kids that are marching that didn't even go to the school. Now all kids have a special say in this as long as they're pro-gun control. They're not just mobilizing for the school. They're mobilizing for all schools. This is now going to turn into a student movement of sorts. Oh. Now it all starts to fit together, doesn't it? It's about a whole lot more than one school shooting and the government's response to it. You are seeing the apparatus of the left in action and mobilizing through the exploitation of a terrible event in which uh, 17 young people were murdered in school by a classmate who was a psychopath who was evil. And yet I'm hearing so much about how the NRA is murder. The NRA is guilty of murder. Trump is going to have blood on his hands if he doesn't do what the kids are demanding. This is not how sound policy is made, and this is not how adults have discussions. It's how the left wants the discussion to go, though. And we will see more and more of their fingerprints all over this. Keep in mind, as we go along here, as we expose what's really happening, they will say the nastiest things. They'll say that you are either with the children or against them. You either want to stop child murder or you don't care. You're complicit in child murder if you don't do what they say. I mean, this is ideological hostage-taking. It's a disgrace, and it's really what's going on. All right, I want to hear from you. 844-900-2825. We will take some calls right after this break. All right, every single line is lit here in the Freedom Hut, so let's rack and stack and take some calls. But first, I just wanted to note that I got a piece of information from one of our own here in the Hut. Brandon, who's running the board today, told me something just to give you a sense of how far and wide the uh, the tentacles of a tragedy like this go. Brandon, tell 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 everyone what you told me. I unfortunately know one of the teachers that was killed in the uh, in the shooting when the name started to come out. Um, I hadn't spoken to Scott Beagle since high school. Went to high school with him, Long Island, uh, Dix Hills High School, uh, Half Hollow Hills High School East, long name. Uh, so he was your classmate? He was my classmate. Uh, plenty of classes. I hadn't spoken to him since, so, I mean, it's an acquaintance. But he was your high school classmate, and he— But I remember him being such a sweet and nice kid. I, so I remember, as soon as I saw his face and name, I know that. I know and, who he And is. He, was one of the, he was one of the heroes of the incident, right? He was one of the ones who ran to open the door to, to, to save some kids. He was the geology teacher who uh, opened his unlocked door to let more students in, and before he can relock it, that's when he got shot, and they're saying that his— body blocked the door from more casualties so unfortunately have saved he's a hero and uh i don't know if you want me to say his wife uh apparently gave a little brief statement because scott jokingly i guess said something that if he was ever killed in any of these situations so by the the quote you'll he never believed it would have happened uh promise me if this ever happens to me you will tell them the truth tell them what a jerk i am and don't talk about the hero stuff so of course his wife what he was saying that as a joke to his wife thinking that this would never happen to him. So when his wife spoke, she still read that. She did? Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. All right, well, Brandon, thank you for sharing that that uh, you know that personal connection mm-hmm. to all this. Uh, all right, let's get into your call, folks. We've got every line lit, like I said, so we got a lot to go to here. Vincent in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Vincent. Uh, hi, Buck. 
Um, I'm sorry to hear about the uh, loss of his friend there. That's uh, horrible to hear. Um, I just couldn't help but uh, I've been listening to this topic now for days on just about every radio show there is. And I don't remember any time where somebody screamed and yelled for what they wanted when they were a kid and they just got what they wanted because they demanded it. Um, But I feel like it's just a program because these uh, protesters, like a lot of the protesters we've seen in the last couple of years, to me, just look like bankrolled protesters that really are uh, dupes. Uh, They'll pretty much, a lot of them will say whatever they're told. Uh, Maybe some of them believe it. Do you think some of this uh, anti-gun stuff, whether current or or what we're going to see, is astroturf? It's not, this is not the grassroots. Exactly. Because I don't, I don't remember meeting too many people who agree with that. Some may say, oh, well, yeah, there's a... uh, guns are dangerous, blah, 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 but a lot of people will never flat out say they're, they want to give up their, their uh, firearms. It is a God-given right to own one, uh, not just because it's written down in the Constitution of the Bill of Rights. And uh, uh, Well, Vincent, I appreciate you sharing thoughts, and thank you for calling in, sir. Shields high. Let's take uh, – we've got a lot of calls coming from North Carolina. We've got a whole bunch of North Carolina calls here. Well, let's – all right, we'll take one more, then we'll, then we'll take it up and uh, take it up to Boston. We got to get lots of different geographical regions in here. North Carolina is uh, very, very heavy on the lines right now. Um, we love you, North Carolina. Mike, in North Carolina. Hey, buddy. Hey, Buck. I totally agree with everything Vincent said. Um, and uh, North Carolina rules. Um, so let me get to it. Um, she said that uh, seventeen people wouldn't be killed with a knife. Miyamoto Musashi killed. Uh, well, he defeated thirty men by himself. Um, taking the swords away from Japan uh, during the um, that time um, spawned ninjas, and uh, so assassination was ran rampant. And uh, to get to the last bit about Japan, Tojo said uh, the reason we have our Second Amendment the, a rifle uh, a rifle behind every bl- uh, blade of grass, right? Thank you, yes, sir. That's <laughs> why they couldn't invade America. Yeah, yep. yep. yeah. Mike, thanks for calling from North Carolina, man. Thank Shields you. high. John in also Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, John. How you doing, Buck? I'm good. Thank you for your call. I was calling about the gun control also. Yeah, of course, man. That's the that's the issue du jour issue of the hour. Go for it. We all need to hear the word control because that's what it's all about. We never hear all of this leftist crying when any other person, child, adult is killed any other way. We just had a child killed by a drunk illegal alien last week in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm still waiting for a politician to cry over that child. John, I, I'm just—I'm going to guess you haven't seen anyone, uh, anyone in the family of that child killed, interviewed on CNN in a national news broadcast on the issue of illegal aliens. About it. Yeah, no alcohol ban, no illegal alien ban, no 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 kind of ban, and no tears. Yeah, I mean the politicization the of this country. of this by the left. I mean to use child victims in a sense as as issues uh or as as politicized policy weapons it's just so tasteless but that's what they're doing exactly and then the other thing is let's talk about making the school safer i have to barcode with my fingerprints in and out of work every time i go in the parking lot if i go into where our truck drivers come like to use the restroom i got a barcode to get back in the building 
It works fine. All we got about 600 people working here thousands of times a day. It works in and out, in and out, in and out. And then we could have some the concealed carry holders take an additional course and carry the faculty carry on campus. And I would also add, you know, if you get uh, concealed carry holders, you also could have people, you know, it could be kind of a, a package training. We do individuals that also understand more about uh, de-escalating physical confrontations in general. You get more teachers that are also trained as first responders. I mean, I, you know, I think it, I think there's a whole lot of ways that we could consider trying to make school. Look, schools are among the softest of soft targets, right? You, they're they're wide open, generally speaking, to the to the public. Uh, you've got you know, kids that can't defend themselves, especially you're talking about an armed assailant, active shooter situation. So, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about, especially in areas where you think that, I mean, look, this isn't just, this isn't a school with with 30 students. Uh, This is a school with almost 3,000, right? I mean, this is a really big institution. They had one armed guard on the premises? One? For 3,000? I mean, my my college had 1,600 students had its own police department, if we want to talk about this, had its own on campus, and they were all armed officers, and they were all uh, deputized under Massachusetts state law. Uh, they were armed, and I think we had, for a campus of 1,600, six officers on any given time. You know, so I mean, just by way of comparison, they got 3,000 kids, and they only had one one officer. Anyway, John, thank you for calling in from uh, Greensboro. Uh, one more, Kenny in Boston. Kenny, we got about a minute, but I want to get you in before we uh, get going with some other stuff here. Go ahead. Right. How you doing? Um, I'm seeing a parallel being revealed between this Parkland gun control movement and the Me Too movement in the sense that they both have a – they want to call this non-political and then engage in politics. And then they want to f- forbid any questioning or – uh, going after the victims at all in any, you know, anything. You have to just listen to them. And we, what they wanted is a, is a, with the Me Too movement, an accusation becomes tantamount to a conviction. And all of that shows me that I think that's all, that's the Me Too movement is largely being orchestrated by the left. Yeah, I see the parallel too, Kenny. It's an astute observation. Thank you very much for calling in, my friend. we got to roll into a, uh, a break coming up here. I know today was Tuesday, but I kind of had a case of the Mondays. I didn't really sleep that well last night. It just felt like, how am I going to get my day started? I had so much work to do. Oh, that's right. I got a whole cupboard full of Black Rifle coffee. Black Rifle is the world's premium small-batch roast-to-order conservative coffee company, and the stuff is delicious, and it is the way to kickstart your day. I have coffee first thing in the morning and then usually in the early afternoon, so I'm hitting Black Rifle twice. You could say... I'm doing a Black Rifle coffee double tap, and it is absolutely what I'd recommend for all of you, too. Go check them out. Vote with your dollar, fuel the revolution, and visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. When you go to the website, make sure you use the coupon code buck15. That's buck15. That'll get you 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code buck15. Support veterans, support the Freedom Hut, and support a fantastic coffee company, Black Rifle. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. After the deadly shooting in Las Vegas, I directed Attorney General 
to clarify whether certain bump stock devices, like the one used in Las Vegas, are illegal under current law. That process began in December, and just a few moments ago, I signed a memorandum directing the Attorney General to propose regulations to ban all devices that turn illegal weapons into machine guns. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. In the last hour, we talked about the student protests and the growing movement uh, to call for gun control in the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida uh, school shooting. And now we just had President Trump talking today about what he's willing to do in response or what he's willing to consider, at least. Uh, We are looking at, or I should say the federal government is now looking at the issue of an AR-15 ban, which I don't think will ever go through. Um, Today, in fact, the Florida state legislature voted down a proposal to ban AR-15s. And sure enough, the media was there and taking photos of, of children from the Parkland High School that were in attendance. Uh, Douglas, I forget, uh, the, the school where the shooting occurred, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And the kids were very upset about the bill not going through. But this is the process that we have. This is the way laws are actually made. It is not based upon whoever has the most passion in the moment. It is based upon a... Uh, Democratic legislate a democratically elected legislature taking action or not. Uh, so they did not pass an AR-15 ban in Florida. They're now turning to state and they say local bans if they can't get a federal ban. This is also what brings me to the there are very well connected and financed adults who are pushing this agenda and using children as props to get what they want. That is happening right now. There is no way. That all of a sudden, here we are uh, days after the event, you have these policies that are just uh, agreed upon at the grassroots student level that are all of a sudden now mobilized and getting a lot of national level press. Do we really think a lot of high school kids generally know the difference between state and local firearms laws and where the federal ban would end and the local ban would begin, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think so. This is being fed to some students, or rather the agenda is being promoted through students as vessels for the message because the students are not to be contradicted publicly because they are victims. That's the game that the Democrats play. It's disgraceful. They are using traumatized children as props in a political fight, but here we are. That is what they are doing. You're also noticing that many of the journalists out there that are pushing the different politicians, Democrats, etc., that are pushing for action, just expose that they do not particularly view the Second Amendment as really a part of the Constitution. They just don't think that that it counts the same way as other stuff. And that's how you get people like... uh, well, as a finance reporter, usually at CNBC, but he, he has an idea for how we could handle the gun problem. The scariest part of these conversations with so many of them said, you know what? I like the idea. There's part of us that actually would like to do something like this, but we are scared about two things. Part of it is we're scared about the, the, the economic potential boycott that could happen both from the NRA and gun owners who say, you know what? 
If J.P. Morgan does this, we're, we're not going to use their cards. The other thing that's even more nerve-wracking, though, is a lot of them said, you know what? I don't want to put my employees in harm's way. I actually think that there could be an incident if we were to do this. I don't want to bring attention wow. to ourselves. And that's a very, very scary thing. You know, now he was talking about banks not working with uh, or refusing to work with companies who sell guns. And as if that's not enough, keep in mind now that would be uh, imagine if, if you had this with any other constitutionally protected right. You know, using that you had that kind of discrimination going on by major institutions that are tremendously fed uh, federally regulated and don't even get me started on it. Uh, you know, where where do banks end and the and the federal government begin is a whole other question. But also notice how it's not enough merely to just say that he thinks that there would be. Uh, issues with a effectively a financial system boycott of firearms manufacturers and gun sellers, cutting them off from the financial markets because of their constitutionally protected right to bear because people want to bear arms and because they to do so, they need to be able to sell them. Look at this. They want to regulate out of existence the Second Amendment. We see them say this. We see this get support. And then they turn around and say, oh, no, no, we just want common sense. Remember, that was the Obama line, common sense gun reform. Then you say, well, it's not common sense because it won't work. So that's nonsensical. What you're talking about doesn't make sense. Oh, well, in that case, you just want dead children. You're a bad person. Do what I say or else I'll tell everybody you just don't care about dead children. That's that's the way the Democrats are advancing the are advancing the ball in this one, my friends. That's what they are doing. And it is uh, very troubling, very troubling indeed. It's not going away. You could, this is now a movement. This is instead of the women's march, you're going to have the gun control march. This will be the manifestation of the resistance, hashtag resistance, anti-Trump left using children as the vanguard so that anyone who contradicts them on a policy level, who makes the counter argument. I'm not saying do it in a mean way. I'm not saying call the kid. You know, you're not going to call. Remember. We're going way beyond just the kids who are at the Marjorie Douglas school now. Now we're talking about just kids in general at schools. They're going to be organized for this purpose. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of students across the country doing walkouts and marches and rallies. But they're all going to be put under this rubric of, well, well, they're the next victims unless we take action. Don't you want to prevent them from being victims? Aren't you anti-gun violence in schools? Oh, well, I guess I am. Well, then you better do what we say. Ban the AR-15 nationally. Ban the AR-15 at the state level, which I would know other states have done. I live in New York State. In fact, here, the, the way that it's ended up being implemented, they've created, because they haven't banned semi-automatic rifles because they can't get that through, so now you just have New York State-compliant AR variants, which, if you've seen, are not particularly pleasing to the eye, but function the same way an AR-15 does. Just no collapsing stock, uh, no carrying handle. I, I think maybe they mandated a cha- uh, some changes to the rail system. I, I don't know. But there's there's some AR-compliant, New York State AR-compliant uh, guns that are being sold, that have been sold. And in Connecticut, they banned, they banned AR-15, said you have to turn them in. They just went with confiscation. And it's estimated that there are over 100,000, I think, now technically illegal ARs in the state of Connecticut. Just because. 
because the you know the, the sheriffs aren't going to go and kicking in doors, I guess, and taking firearms from people that they legally purchased and they're legally allowed to have a gun. But in Connecticut, they said, "Well, we're gonna you have to turn it in now." And a lot of people didn't turn them in. So there's that. Uh, this is where this whole discussion is going. Just understand the politics behind it. Now, I, I know we've got a lot. We took some calls in the last hour on guns and gun control and this issue. Um, we're going to continue talking about this here on the show. I, I don't want to spend too much of our time tonight on this because we're going to be back on it tomorrow. And this is now front and center. It has replaced immigration. I thought at this point in February 2018 we'd be talking immigration, immigration. Nope. We have moved to gun control now, and so this will be a continuing theme here on the show. So if you don't get a chance to talk to us about it today, if you're calling in or you've been waiting on hold, I know a lot of you have. I promise there'll be lots of opportunities going forward because this is now a focus of the left, and we have to engage on this to make sure that bad policy does not result. Um, But coming up in this hour, I just want to give you a sense of where we're going, a little more on the, uh, the Russian troll factory and what's real and what's not with all that and what's serious analysis and what's hysterical hyperbole. Uh, Then we will talk about the latest casualty of the Mueller investigation, a lawyer who had nothing to do with anything but said the wrong thing to Mueller. Whoops. Now he's facing federal felony. He's a citizen of the Netherlands, by the way. I think this is interesting. The U.S., U.S. extends federal law to pretty much everybody it can all over the world. It's it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, this is where you start to see other countries. Come on. Right. But U.S. is like, oh, no, we're we're going to this is when you start to make laws about meddling and meddling in elections. And just wait till that blows back on us. Trust me. Uh, but this lawyer uh, who is now stand, is, is taking a, a plea deal and also one of Manafort's associates. So we got some updates in the Mueller investigation, but I think in some ways, most interesting coming up this hour, and it'll be later on, we have a guest joining as a lawyer to talk about, uh, and I see now some of the networks, I had planned this interview all day, I see some of the networks have actually run interviews on this in the last hour or so. What if the fix was in against General Flynn? What if they actually knew that he wasn't intentionally lying or doing anything that was a crime, but they decided that it was essential to get Flynn in order to create the appearance of legitimacy for the rest of the Mueller probe of Trump's people and all the rest of it, right? What if they stacked the deck to go after General Flynn? What if they were going for his scalp and they cheated to do it? I mean, the prosecutors. Can't prove that yet. But there is an argument that we may, in fact, find out whether or not that happened, and there's some reason to believe that it did. There's some reason to believe that it did. We are going to look at that later on in this hour because Flynn may be withdrawing. There's there's some word out there. Flynn may be withdrawing his guilty plea. Why would he do that? Well, there's a judge that's involved, a very important judge, a judge who is one of the few who has held the statists and, yes, even the deep staters to account in the past, Judge Emmett Sullivan. He is saying that the FBI has to produce information here about the Flynn guilty plea. All of the information, perhaps. That will be very interesting because I have a feeling, and we'll talk about why, that this may uncover that Flynn got the flip side of Hillary Clinton justice. 
You see, with Hillary and her top aides, it was how do we bend the law? How do we bend over backwards to do everything we can to make sure that there's zero legal jeopardy here? We have seen not just the converse of that process, the uh, the flip side of that coin, but with the same actors involved. Peter Strzok, James Comey, Deputy Director McCabe at the FBI, the same people involved. We see how they do the one trial or the one case. We see how they do the other case. You know, which of these things is not like the other? Although one involves a Republican president, one involves the hope, the singular hope of the Democrat Party, Hillary Clinton. Hmm, looks like they were treated quite differently. We will get into that later on this hour. You will definitely want to hear that. And then we'll talk also about the uh, some of the specific gun policies I haven't gotten to yet. I wanted to hold off uh, because we got Sean Davis from the Federalist joining us in the third hour. And then we'll just kind of freestyle it and talk about whatever comes to mind. So a lot more coming uh, with all of that. First, let me tell you, my friends, I take information security very seriously. And I also think it's critical to have the best information you can at all times. That's why I'm all about global verification network they are a dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company in fact they're the only company of its kind that qualifies in that way they're veteran owned and operated Uh, go to mygvn.com to check out what these guys do they are headquartered in chicago and they are risk mitigation experts if you are going to hire someone if you're going to uh, rent somebody a property that you own or just engage with a major client any business transaction You want to know who's on the other side of that transaction. You want to know, is this someone you can trust? Is this somebody that you can exchange financial and commercial interests with? Global Verification Network can be the difference between between big success and failure on this one, my friends. Check them out. MyGVN.com, MyGVN.com, or call 877-695-1179, Imagine my surprise when you have so many in the media and in the Democrat Party and even some Republicans, plenty of Republicans, actually, who are treating the indictment of 13 Russians tied to a social media campaign, a tiny one in terms of the budget, an inconsequential one in terms of what it did. And you can imagine my surprise, however, when. Over at MSNBC, I hear some analysis that is actually quite sound, is actually right on the mark. Here's what Adrian Chen, a journalist, had to say about what went on with the whole Russia interference situation. It's essentially a social media marketing campaign with 90 people, a couple million dollars, a few million dollars behind it. Um, run by people who have, you know, a bare grasp of the English language and not a full understanding of who they're targeting, what they're targeting. Um, I think if you think about that in terms of just a normal marketing campaign, that's not going to be a very good bang for your buck. There's not a lot of people saying, well, let's let's hold back. You know, maybe it's not all of that big of a deal. Maybe it's not all that big of a deal. You know, he makes some really some really worthwhile points in there, too, about how it, it is the case that 
people were able to tell generally who these troll accounts were and what was going on, because in a lot of them, the grasp of English wasn't even very good. Vote, vote Trump. He is best. Oh, love, hug, and kisses Kremlin. I mean, come on. It just wasn't going to be that effective no matter what. It was minuscule when compared to the massive media echo chambers on both sides when it comes to the election. It's just complete nonsense. But here we we got a guy who's willing to say, look, maybe people shouldn't shouldn't just totally freak out about this. And yeah, that's all I'm trying to say about this, too. We shouldn't freak out about it. It's not that big a deal. People want to make it a big deal because Hillary lost. But you see, this is what it brings us back to the point about how they were willing to overlook it when they thought Hillary was going to win, because that was their their actual judgment at the time. Not that big a deal. Don't rock the boat. Hillary's going to win. We'll forget all about this. That was their real feeling about it. If you don't believe me, just remember this. This is what President Obama said. There is no serious person out there who would suggest somehow that you could even you could even rig America's elections, in part because they're so decentralized and the numbers of votes involved. There's no evidence Absolutely. that that yes. has happened in the past or that True. there are instances in which that will happen this time. And so uh, I'd advise Mr. Trump to stop whining and go try to make his case to get votes. And if he got the most votes, then it would be my expectation of Hillary Clinton to offer a gracious concession speech and pledge to work with him to make sure the American people benefit from an effective government. Yeah. Uh, What Obama said there is all true, actually. Hey, look, I give credit. I give credit where it's due. Some people are just, you know, rah-rah, whatever they think, you know, the conservative populist movement wants to hear right now. I just tell you what I think at any given moment. And what Obama said there is true. It would be very, very hard for any one person to rig an election. It would be very hard to rig an election, period. It would be. I mean, if you, for example, were to make sure that there was no voter ID in place in a whole lot of states, and, you know, I mean, that that would at least make it easier. I'm not saying you could, but it would make it easier. But nonetheless be very hard to do, right, realistically. And they knew this, and they knew it before, and they know it now, but they're just so self-indulgent when it comes to their anti-Trump rage that they'll justify anything with it. And that's why this whole troll factory... I mean, it's funny, you know, I was just explaining to uh, Miss Molly a little bit about this, and she's... One of the great things about our relationship is she's not somebody who's political. You know, she's she's up on what goes on in the world, but she's not it's just she's got other things on her mind. It's great. I mean, I don't go home and have to, you know, oh, did you read the latest piece in the Weekly Standard? I'm like, no, 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 it's not. It's not how it goes. I was explaining this to her and she's kind of like, wait, what? How many people? How much money? What? And I was like, yeah, exactly. It's it's a kind of what situation like this is not what they're trying to make it into. And that's what is so. Uh, so exasperating. That's a good word for exasperating. Oh, gosh. Get so tired of it. But we got to keep fighting, folks. Got to keep the shields high because they're they're going to push on this. This is all about, remember, all about impeachment in the long term. All about it. That's why they are clinging to the narrative because if they are able to, they don't, they're not going to get removal unless they win the Senate and the House. But even if all they can manage is to, let's say, 
uh, take the House, which I think is unlikely, but that's what they're hoping. They'll they'll impeach the president on this issue, even without a Mueller, uh, a Mueller, never mind a smoking gun with anything. I mean, I didn't even mention it yet. I got to talk about it right after this. This latest guy that Mueller got, everyone's just like, what is what is this? Why are we even? So he he was uh, I'll have to look. I'll have to give you the details. It's so insignificant and so nonsensical in the broader scope of what Mueller's supposed to be looking for here with Russia collusion that you're forced to sit around and just say to yourself, what are we even spending our tax dollars on here with Mueller? He's some Dutch lawyer who said something that no one cares about to the FBI is now facing prison time. It's crazy. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. When you return an indictment that no one is ever going to be tried on, um, you do it because you're trying to craft a narrative or make a statement. And I think what happened with Mueller's case is the original collusion angle that they were proceeding on, which is that the Russians hacked the election— and that Trump may have been or Trump people may have been complicit in the hacking is something that, uh, A, they don't have evidence of, and B, even if they had it, they couldn't prove in court. That's a big hole in a collusion case. What Mueller probably wanted to do was put to rest any claim uh, that Russia hadn't actually uh, interfered with our election. And I think this indictment is an attempt to do that. But it's far afield from what the original collusion allegation was. As our friend Andy McCarthy, who was just laying out some of his thoughts on Fox News about the Mueller indictment from last week. It's very important that we all understand they're creating a narrative with all this. That, that Mueller is actually bringing a federal case against 13 Russians really as part of the news cycle. That's what this is about. This is. Uh, it's a news story. It's not actually a federal prosecution. It's not going to go anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It's never going to get these guys. And as I've said to you also, I think there's a whole bunch of other problems with information warfare as a charge that a federal prosecutor, effectively federal prosecutor, is is levying against uh, another country and what that means for our country. And do we ever meddle? Mm? I don't know think maybe sometimes it might have happened somewhere, just saying, some meddling. But you have the Mueller probe continuing on. As we discussed last week, there was uh, there were the indictments. And then today you have two more bits of information to add into all this. One, you have a, a colleague of Paul Manafort's, Gates, who has been flipped, we are told, who has been flipped and is going to testify against Manafort. And they're going to be, they're going to try to nail them on some fraud stuff and some wire fraud, bank stuff, you know, just things that have nothing to do with Russia collusion. Nothing. But I, I've, I've said this all along. You, you, those of you who have been listening to the show for a while, we're now over a year on air here in national syndication. Those of you who've been listening to me for a while know I have been, very consistent on this point. This is going to grind along and it's going to chop up the lives of a whole bunch of folks 
that have nothing to do with conspiring with the Kremlin to mess with a U.S. election. But the left just wants they just want to feed bodies into the system. They, they just want scalps. They want people to be punished. So that there is some sense of wrongdoing from the Trump camp, right? Just because if, if anyone goes to prison, it doesn't matter what for, if it's tax evasion, which may very well be involved in the Manafort charge, well, then there are bad people that were around Trump. Keep, Manafort got canned during the campaign. It's not Trump's fault if Manafort was doing shady stuff in Ukraine beforehand and whatever. And as we all know, the Trump campaign was uh, a, a little bit of an improvisation. I could say that, an, an improvisation. And some of the people that were affiliated with and associated with the Trump campaign, and this also goes to a lot of the never Trump sentiment, you know, all the in the political world, the so-called best and brightest and most connected were not going to work for Trump in the beginning. I know because I know a lot of those folks. They were running over to the Rubio and Cruz campaigns and Jeb Bush. Although Jeb, Jeb, exclamation point, uh, fizzled out pretty quickly. But it was Rubio and Cruz that were attracting the, the political high rollers, so to speak, in the in the early days, not Trump. And that's why Trump put such a premium on loyalty, because he he was really able to see, you know, who's who's with me. You know, it wasn't just who's with me because you think I'm going to win. Who's with me because they believe. But that meant that there were other people who were just opportunists. And Manafort was one of them. Right. Manafort's like, yeah, I'll, sure, Donald, like I'll come and ride this way for a while with you. Why not? You know, I mean, if I'll do it for some shady Ukrainians, I'll do it for you. Right. Who cares? Well, now Manafort's in a in some trouble. Innocent until proven guilty, but it looks like he's in a rough spot. Then you get this other guy today. And I have to read this to you so I get the I make sure I get all the specifics clear. The son in law, according to the Washington Post here, son in law of Russian uh well, here's what the opening paragraph is. The Dutch son in law of one of Russia's wealthiest men pleaded guilty Tuesday in federal court in Washington to making false statements in special counsel Mueller's probe of Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Alex Vanderswan was charged with lying to the FBI about his contacts with Rick Gates, who's that, who served as a top official on President Trump's campaign and a longtime business partner of former campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Based in London, Vanderswan worked for the law firm Skadden Arps, very famous, very high-end, uh, Law firm, well-known here in New York City. A lot of my law school buddies wanted to go work there. Uh, which worked with Manafort and Gates when they served as political consultants in Ukraine. Uh, so this guy's 33 years old, and he's pleaded guilty to a felony. We don't know what his punishment's going to be. He could serve up to six months in prison. Uh, but now he's a convicted felon, which I would know means that, at least under U.S. law, I mean, he's a Dutch citizen, under U.S. law, he could... Uh, not practice law anymore as a convicted felon. So I don't know how that affects him in Europe, but who who knows? Uh, But here's the thing. He talked about when he last spoke to Gates and he was off by like a month. And they're saying that, you know, that's a big deal. And so now he's facing a federal criminal charge. What does this vendors one guy have to do with anything? Who knows? But Mueller's just, he's just out taking people down. You you know, say what you will about this. You can't look at this and not think, hmm, how does the Mueller, how do Mueller's tactics compare to the FBI's tactics with Hillary's emails? Just always keep that in the back of your mind. And I think you'll understand what's really at work here. Speaking of which, Flynn, was 
Flynn ambushed? Did they stack the deck? Did they cheat to get Flynn's scalp? We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So there's been a lot of reporting on Russia collusion the last few days. There's this whole indictment of the 13 guys tied to the troll factories and the sock puppet maneuvers, all the stuff you've seen on Facebook, what we've been talking about here on the show. But there's something else that's happening in the legal world right now that touches on these investigations over Russian interference and theoretical collusion and all this other stuff. It has to do with the status of General Michael Flynn's plea uh, plea deal. So let's bring on somebody who has particular insight in this. We have Margot Cleveland with us. She is a senior contributor to The Federalist and a lawyer who served nearly 25 years as a career law clerk for federal uh, appellate judge and an adjunct professor in the College of Business at University of Notre Dame. And you are involved in this case, Margot. Well, I'm involved in the sense that I've been researching it after I started seeing the media just ignore all of these problems that have been coming out. And when I dug into it more, I realized that there is a huge issue of whether or not in the plea agreement there was information withheld from Flynn. Hold on. Let me just tell everybody what the title of of Margo's piece is here. It's how a plea reversal from Michael Flynn could uncover more federal corruption. Margo, I read your whole piece. It's really interesting. I think very important. I'm somebody who gets very agitated about the possibility of federal overreach and prosecutorial misconduct. And this seems like it's at least possible right now and and trending toward likely that there's something going on here with this. Can you walk us through what's what what may in fact be the case with this Flynn plea deal and why you're seeing it that way? Okay, sure. So after he pled guilty within a week, the judge who accepted his guilty plea was taken off the case and a new judge was given the case which by itself, that was pretty mysterious. Usually, if there's a recusal, it would happen before they accept a plea deal. So that was the first thing that kind of came out as weird. And then, um, it was last week, there was a standing order that was entered in the case, and it was the first time I took a look at it, and it required the government to turn over any exculpatory evidence to Flint. And at that point, it was actually a revised standing order. The judge had done it back in December, I think it was. And when I looked at it a little bit more, I thought, you know what? If there's this evidence that's not out there, this judge is given the, the green light that this is a basis to withhold the guilty plea. I'm sorry, to withdraw a guilty plea. Now, whether or not the government withheld evidence, I don't know. We'd have to wait to see what comes out. But you got to keep in mind who the players are in the Flynn case. So we had that FBI duel, the ones who were texting back and forth, and one of those was the individual who had actually interviewed Flynn, which is what he was charged with lying to the FBI on. So you look at that, and he originally, the FBI agent, had originally said he didn't think Flynn was lying. Mueller said he didn't think Flynn was lying. But then Flynn gets indicted on this. So... Can you, how could that be possible, Margo? I mean, you've got sure. how could some FBI, DOJ officials think that someone did not lie and then that person is charged with lying for the circumstances under review? That just seems, you know, how much faith can we put in the process when one FBI guy goes, no, there's no lie. And another says, yeah, I think there's a lie. 
Right, and and that's the part that's really concerning that you have those statements and then he gets charged. Now, it could be that they had more evidence that contradicted something he said in the interview that came out later or that showed that he really didn't forget the scenario. That was, that was some of the testimony that he didn't recall something or the inconsistency would be something that maybe he forgot. So who knows? Maybe they discovered something else. But when you look at all the players that were involved in this, They've got all of this stuff coming out that is throwing questions about their credibility. And if this comes forward, now the government has to turn over this evidence. And it sounds like that Flynn took the plea deal before he was given some of this exculpatory evidence. So, again, we don't know yet what this evidence is, but the judge who sat on this case, or excuse me, who is currently on this case. This is Judge Sullivan, right? Judge right. Sullivan, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting guy with some of his previous decisions, too. He, he is not friendly to the government playing games with this. Exactly. He is the judge who, when he discovered the withholding of evidence in Stevens, in the... In the Senator Texas, Ted Stevens' case in Alaska, right. Exactly, exactly. He was irate. He ordered an investigation. He did not tolerate it. So if there is nothing, I will absolutely trust Sullivan. So if Sullivan comes out and clears it, I have no concerns about the Flynn component of it. Is, is it, can still, I ask you, is it a settled matter? Um, and we're speaking to Margo Cleveland, everyone, mm-hmm. senior contributor to The Federalist, and she's a, a lawyer. Uh, Margo, is it a, feder- is, is it a Federalist? Sorry. Is it settled law that you, if you take a plea deal, exculpatory evidence that is found later does not matter? How does that work? So essentially, for everyone listening, if 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 the feds come to me and say, you're looking at five years or you plead guilty today and uh, you'll get a six-month suspended sentence, and if it came out, you know, two weeks after that, that the feds actually knew I was innocent all along, does that matter? It depends on where you are. This is an issue that is not resolved in the courts yet, And that was one of the things that I found interesting about Judge Sullivan's standing order. The the lower courts are actually split on this. The Supreme Court has never said whether or not withholding exculpatory evidence in a plea case will result in the plea being thrown out. If, If it's withheld and you go to trial, you get a new trial. But in a plea case, the courts have different views. But this is where it's key. Judge Sullivan, Sullivan's view is that you must turn this evidence over, and if you don't, that is a basis for a plea to be withdrawn. He is a, a district court judge in D.C., and there are at least two, if not three, district court cases in D.C. that have held that. And, and again, that's one of the key points that I was trying to make in this, in this article, trying to take the kind of mushy legal stuff and, and make it pretty clear that in his court, if they withheld material exculpatory evidence, it would be a basis to withdraw a plea. So if it does get withdrawn, we're going to know there's some problems there. But if it does get withdrawn, mm-hmm. I mean, Margo, I know you're, you're, you're a lawyer, so you're keeping it right on the straight and narrow here, but I'm going to come out and say if they withdraw the plea, it's because Flynn was getting hosed and this was a setup. That's what that means to me. You don't have to agree yeah, with that, but that's and, how I see I, it. Right, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Flynn might have pled for valid reasons. Maybe he knew he did something wrong, or he might have pled for invalid reasons that he was 
concerned about what it would do to his family and the, the, the long process. So it could have gone one way or the other from a personal standpoint. I mean, how, how often does a defendant in a federal case change a guilty plea unless there's new information that would change the status of their, I mean, just right. how, I've never heard of that happening. Well, it, it actually happens where they try to do it a lot, and, and usually it's not these high-profile cases. But from my perspective, the bigger issue if he withdraws a plea is that the evidence was withheld. So you can kind of look at it two ways. There's the Flynn matter of him personally, and then there's the matter of what does this say about the prosecutors involved in the case. And I think the second issue is the one that has broader ramifications. Obviously, to Flynn, it matters. But the broader ramifications, if he is able to withdraw the plea, is that this process was corrupted. Well, that's what, well, that's what I mean. I mean. It would seem to me pretty clear that we're dealing with a bunch of prosecutorial headhunters here, which is not a good thing when you're talking about an open-ended, massive special counsel investigation. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and just to clarify, what I mean is Flynn could have done something wrong, whether or not the prosecutors were good or bad. But the problem of the, the plea going through in this context is, it is showing that there would be broader corruption if this evidence was withheld. And I do want to make one more point here, that this is really tying into the whole FISA court process, which really triggered my interest in this. When I read the House memo that came out and then the Grassley-Graham memo, the process of the FISA court was completely abused from what they said in those memos. And I wrote a couple articles on that that you can take a look at at the Federalist. But this all is going to a broader problem with how the Department of Justice is handling things, or I should say select individuals. And to me that's shocking because I've known some U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys, who have the most integrity. And to me, this is what is the most disturbing about it. Yeah, but what we saw from the Ted Stevens thing, for example, Senator Ted it, Stevens, if that doesn't happen, by the way, we probably don't have Obamacare for everybody listening. A bunch of federal pos- prosecutors knew that he had exculpatory evidence, and they hid it. It was terrible. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they literally were like, oh, we know this guy's innocent. Let's nail him anyway because he's got an R next to his name, and he's a senator from Alaska. That's what happened there. Margot Cleveland, everybody, check out her piece, How a Plea Reversal from Michael Flynn Could Uncover More Federal Corruption. It is really compelling reading. It's up on thefederalist.com. Margot, please stay with it. And if you have updates, we would love to have you back to explain what's going on here, okay? Great. Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Margot. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. When we come back, we are going to talk uh, with our friend Sean Davis about what's going on with the various fixes that are or whether they're fixes or not, the various uh, actions that people are talking about on guns in the re- as a result of the tragedy in Florida. We'll get into that more. Stay with me. Welcome back, everyone. So we have been talking a lot about guns here in the Freedom Hunt because of what happened in Florida. This is the center of the national policy discussion right now. It's not immigration. It's not even Russia right now. It is, in fact, guns, the Second Amendment, gun control, what to do about school shootings. So there are proposals now on the table. Unlike in some previous shootings, there are at least real ideas that are being forwarded, not by everyone, but by some. And therefore, we should spend some time looking at them and judging them on their merits. And to help us do that now, we have Sean Davis. He is co-founder of The Federalist, thefederalist.com. It's one of my favorite 
commentary sites. You guys should all be quite familiar with it. Sean's the co-founder, and he joins us now. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Can you just the, the, let's let's work through what are some of the 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 biggest takeaways in terms of policy from the horrible tragedy in Florida? I mean, I, I can throw some your way, Sean. Also, if there's any, I'm leaving out. But I, I just wanted to start with what do you think about uh, age restrictions for buying an AR? I'm seeing that get a lot of play. Uh, I think they're utterly silly. Um, devoid of information on who's responsible for uh, the bulk of mass shootings and just, you know, fundamentally at odds uh, with what we know about how criminals work and about how human nature works. For example, Ross Douthat at the New York Times said, you know what, because all these shooters are young men, we shouldn't let anyone under 30 uh, buy an AR-15, which, number one, it's just it, it's so silly. There are so many other guns out there that are, are more powerful, have a uh, bigger range, uh, better terminal ballistics. And yet the AR has captured uh, gun controllers imagination for, for some reason. And then the other issue is looking at the actual data of who commits mass shootings in the U S uh, you would think looking at news coverage that it's always alienated young men, teenagers, early twenties. And that's just not the case. In fact, the majority, 55% of mass shootings in this country are committed by middle-aged men, men between the ages of 30 and 50 is the majority of mass shootings in the U.S. So these age-based restrictions, they are um, they're wild attempts to try to come up with some way, somehow, to ban this gun or that gun, but they're just not rooted in the reality of what's happening I, I think that's uh, in the, the U.S. Today. You've made a, a number of points that everybody should keep in mind, but the, the, the one that sticks out the most for me is that this would not go to the heart of the problem because you're not even necessarily going to legally, never mind their illegal possession of weapons, which we know is always also an issue that comes in here, but to legally possess weapons, people in the age range of mass shooters, there will be plenty of them that will be able to get them, as you said. So people over 30 are engaged in plenty of mass shootings, too, so that wouldn't stop the problem. Okay, so that one doesn't seem like it. That, that falls in that category for me, Sean, if people say, well... How big a deal is it? I would also point out that there's no way it would stop at just the AR-15 because the moment you ban or you you have an age-based restriction for the AR, people would rightfully say, well, it's not really that different from a lot of other rifles. And then, bam, you'd have a list of like 50 to 100 rifles minimum. Right. There's no saving a gun controller um, because, you know, once you get, grant the principle that it's okay to ban this gun or that gun or this caliber or that caliber, you, th- there's no limiting principle on it. Um, and, and I guess the, we've talked about this before. My big complaint with this debate is it's not actually about guns. It's not about gun control. What we are having is a debate with guns as proxies about human nature and the nature of man. Yep. There are people on one side of the debate who thinks that if you can just uh, regulate these tools, have the right mix of laws. You can regulate out of uh, the heart of man an inclination or ability to do evil. And then on the other side, you, you have people who say, you know what? Uh, people have been murdering each other for the entirety of human history, uh, you know, going back to the very beginning. And uh, the, the most wicked, devastating tool of death uh, that has ever been devised is the wicked human heart. And rather than pretending like we can just put these things under lock and key and then uh, bad people won't want to do bad things anymore, maybe we should give good people the ability to defend themselves 
against the bad people. I also and that's the whole debate. I would I would agree with, with everything that you just asserted. I would also add to it that I think that guns becomes also an ideological proxy battle, a battleground for the cultural left and the right, that it's just a way of showing, you know, the people in, in blue strongholds, coastal areas and, and Democrat strongholds of the country. They don't like people who own guns. They actually they think that people who own guns are rubes and hillbillies and they're gross. And so this is one of the reasons why it becomes such an emotional issue for them, because it's a way of throwing, you know, throwing some stuff at the other guys. No, I, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's a cultural chivalrous. Um, and in fact, in, in a lot of quarters, especially in media, you know, we mock people on the left for not knowing the slightest thing about guns and just messing up in embarrassingly bad ways, basic stuff. Like uh, at one point, USA Today said a, a hot new accessory for the AR. Cha- the chains. I knew you were going to go with the chainsaw on the rail system. That's How my favorite, too. How can I not go after the chainsaw bayonet? So, but they, that ignorance is almost a badge of, uh, a badge of courage. It signifies that they are not going to solely themselves, um, by, by getting into the mud with these icky, knuckle-dragging, buck-toothed, hillbilly uh, gun clingers. And, you know, they're, they are so much more high-minded. They don't even need to learn about I, I I've you said this, and I'm so happy that someone, someone agrees with me, Sean. I've been saying that it, it is viewed as an issue where it's the only issue I know of in journalism where to be wrong is actually to score points among your own. Because it shows your disdain for the issue. It's like it's the equivalent of if a TV announcer ever brings somebody on TV and doesn't have their name right. That's like the most 101 thing ever. And you can assume that a lot of times they would only do it because I don't even care to know this person's name with the gun with the anti gun crowd in journalism. They don't even care to know the difference between an automatic and a semi automatic because it doesn't matter because they're all bad. That's actually the mentality they have. It is. It is. And, and they'll get mad at you if you nitpick them on stuff like that, like, oh, because I didn't know this was a Ruger versus a Remington, and I can't regulate guns. Mm. Uh, when It's actually, no, the last time you tried this, you regulated guns by feature, and you put stupid features on there that had absolutely nothing to do with anything, and then patted yourselves on the back for having done a real good job. And in fact, one of the people who backed uh, that 94 assault weapons ban, Carolyn McCarthy in New York, was asked on national TV about one of those cosmetic features that was listed and banned in the law. And it was with Tucker Carlson. He said, okay, you, you banned a barrel shroud. What's a barrel shroud? And she hemmed and hawed. It, it was apparent she had no idea what it was. And finally she said, oh, it's the shoulder thingy that goes up. Like you can't have people with that level of knowledge writing into law specific definitions that ban this thing or that thing. You actually have to know what you're doing. Just as you wouldn't want a mechanic who didn't know the difference between a wrench and a screwdriver taking apart your engine. It's just dumb. And also, let me that these bans they put in place, people can get arrested for this stuff. I think that's often lost here. It's not like we're no longer offering this product at your local CVS or something. If they put a magazine ban in place in a certain state, they will arrest people for that. Yeah, and, and, and looking back again at the 94 law, they, they had things on there like, you know, if it has a bayonet lug, not even a bayonet, a bayonet lug, it's banned. Or if it has a, a muzzle brake or a collapsible stock. Well, you know what people did to get around it is they would pin and weld the stock, and then they would pin and weld a muzzle device under the barrel. Ta-da! Suddenly it's compliant. The gun, functionally, was no different than it was before. I want to ask you, we're speaking to Sean Davis of The Federalist, everybody. He's co-founder of The Federalist. You can check out his latest on the website. Um, One that that is getting a lot of attention and that I think is a a good faith effort and at least worthy of discussion. Well, I guess they're all worthy of discussion, but worthy of perhaps further 
investigation is David French in National Review, although he said it's not his idea. He's forwarding the proposal for a temporary restraining order for the purchase of firearms. What say you, Sean Davis? And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. He was talking about related to mental health. Correct. Yes. Uh, Sorry. So um, I, I should have explained imminent- this. So it's a it's a it's a temporary restraining order based on a mental health adjudication to prevent somebody for a period of time for, for getting a gun. They'd have to go in front of a court. There would obviously be some. So th- this was essentially uh, a, a version of a much because it's very hard to get somebody adjudicated mentally incompetent, which is a good thing because we actually don't want people to be able to be locked away unless there's very good reason. Uh, but this would be to say, hey, look, the same way that you can't have a gun because of a domestic violence conviction in the past or if you've ever been the order, if you've ever been under a protective order, I believe there's also uh, some restrictions in some states. Uh, in this case, if the people around you think you're nuts, you can go before a judge that they can say, all right, you for this period of time, no gun for you. You know, I I like David French a lot. I know where he's coming from. Um, I, in principle, I don't have a problem with his idea. I think that's fine. Uh, in practice, I have lots of concerns um, because it, it there's just so many things that go into the details of that. Uh, you know, what's going to be required? What's the evidentiary standard? What's your ability um, to go and argue your own case in court if it turns out a bunch of coworkers or neighbors who are mad at you? Um, have decided, you know, they don't like these uh, gun humpers, so they're going to get this guy's guns taken away. But assuming it could all be done in a good faith way where you can mitigate or eliminate uh, the the chances of um, chicanery or revenge-based targeting of gun owners, I don't have a problem with it. I, I think that I think it's totally fair. What I wish we would do, however, rather than uh, everyone trying to come up with clever new laws to put on the books, I really do wish we would enforce the laws that we have now because what we had in Florida – well, was a kid whose home had been visited 39 times. He had put on YouTube that he wanted to shoot up a school. All his classmates knew it. The FBI knew it. And they did nothing. So what on earth is a new law going to do when you have a regime, which we saw in Florida, where all of the warning signs were there, everyone knew this guy was a ticking time bomb, and nobody did anything about it? Sean, is there anything that you think that really – was there anything that's at the top of your list before we let you go that you think should be done here in response to this shooting? Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, knowing what we do about these cowards who love targeting defenseless people who can't shoot back, um, knowing what we do about that, maybe we should stop making our schools completely defenseless and soft targets. Maybe we should give teachers and employees and administrators who are already licensed by the state to carry a concealed weapon. uh, Maybe they've gone through extra training. You're already trusting these people with your children all day long. It's about time we give people who are already trained and licensed to do this stuff the right to protect the children under their charge while they're at school. Let's stop broadcasting to these evil cowards that they can go into these gun-free zones and turn them into free fire zones and start sending the message that if you set foot on this campus with a gun intent on doing harm, we're going to put you down. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist. Check out thefederalist.com for more of their writing. Sean, always appreciate you making the time, my friend. Talk soon. It's a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Today we're going to roll into a quick break. We'll be right back. So I see that J-Law was initially reported, and for those who are not into this kind of stuff, I'm assuming that a very small percentage of this audience subscribes to People Magazine or reads Us Weekly. My only connection to pop culture is Miss Molly. She keeps me informed, so I don't say things like, you know, who are who are the Kardashians again or whatever. She makes sure that I know what's going on in the world other than politics and national security and, and political philosophy and whatnot. 
but it turns out that J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence, actress of many films, is not taking a break from acting for the... I initially thought she was, and I came on, I was going to say, oh, no, because, you know, truth be told, I'm uh, kind of a J-Law fan, you know? I, I appreciate... I celebrate her whole catalog. I think it's... She's got a nice nice body of work. Um, and yet, here we are, being told in advance that we can expect there to be some politics coming out of uh, Ms. Ms. Lawrence in the next year. Because you know, activism to celebrities, they never do activism that's not, or at least I never hear about, maybe that's a better way to put it, I never hear about activism that isn't in the realm of progressive virtue signaling. Why can't we have more celebrities whose activism is, I want to you know, raise lots of money for charter schools in the inner city. I want to raise lots of money for uh, a specific cancer research program or whatever it is, all these good things. I mean, you know, I'd like to see more really big name celebrities out there that are, are raising money for, you know, St. Jude's. Why is it that we always have these celebrities that are, you know, oh, I'm in global warming. I've got to go to international summits and talk about global warming. Or, you know, it's, it's always uh, transgender rights, global warming, just something that's in the progressive vanguard. I-, I would have so much more respect for what they're doing if they leverage their celebrity for something that was just clearly of public benefit and not some form of brand enhancement for themselves. Because when you do things like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio with this whole climate change thing, the guy's literally flying around the world on his private jet to go to climate change meetings you know, and talk about this. And you know, not to be mean, but I mean, I don't even think the guy, I, I think it's unlikely the guy has like a 10th grade reading level. And yet he's going to lecture the whole world on the most among the most complicated scientific issues facing the international community today. Although I don't think it's really I mean, I don't think the answer is that complicated. The answer is we don't really have to do anything and it's going to be fine. Uh, but I know people yell at me for that. Don't use the paper bags, Buck. Don't use them. Why? What's going to happen? The earth will melt. Uh, anyway, so J-Law is going to be doing activism next year. I saw that today. She's good. I mean, I like J-Law. She's not, not quite as good as Jessica Biel, but she's close. You know, they're in, they're in a similar similar category. Um and I'm going to switch now to George Clooney before I get myself into trouble. And George Clooney is also talking about doing more politics. Now, they're saying maybe even Clooney 2020. Now, here's the thing about that. And just this is not a knock on the Trump presidency. It's just a statement of reality. Until now, when a well-known celebrity said he or she was thinking about running for the presidency. It was an understandable reaction for a lot of us to just say, oh, that's a version of brand enhancement, right? This is a lot of free press, and they'll get their name out there. But remember, if we're going to be honest about it, when Donald Trump was first running in this 2016 cycle, a lot of people said that about Trump. A lot of people. I remember that White House, uh, White House, uh, was it the... White House Correspondents' Dinner, where where Obama made a Trump joke, or was it the other, the uh, I think like the Smith Dinner, I forget what it's called. Anyway, they made a joke about Trump. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they made he made some joke about Trump. Obama did, and Trump was just like, "Oh, really? It was the Correspondents' Dinner? Yeah, that's right." And and Trump was just like, "Oh, really? 
Oh, really? And then later when he started to run, people were like, this is all a publicity stunt. Well, clearly it wasn't because he's now the president of the United States. That just means that when you got a celebrity now, whether it's Clooney or Oprah or, or any of them, you are in a position where you got to at least look at it on the merits and say, OK, maybe, maybe. Would, would George Clooney be a formidable political candidate? I'm not sure, but I can't say definitely not because the guy looks like a political candidate, which unfortunately means a lot these days because of our mass media environment. It's all changed so much, hasn't it? You know, did anybody in like 1880 know what the president even looked like or sounded like? I mean, a few people did, but for the most part, you voted for a platform. You had some rough idea of what, you know, this guy or that guy stood for. Maybe you heard him at a speech. You know, I mean, back in the day, the presidents were like doing their own dry cleaning. You know, it was a very different, very different environment. Now it's all about mass media. Now it's all about the uh, the propaganda involved here. And, uh, well, it's propaganda if you think it's a bad thing. It's just public relations if you think it's a good thing. Uh, but you have celebrities that are going to increasingly get into politics. There's no question about it. They're going to get into politics. That's going to be a, a result of Trump's success. Uh, just a, a side effect, you could say, of a reality TV star, which he was, who is now the commander in chief and leader of the free world. I don't think that J-Law is going to go quite in that direction, but I'd be I'd be torn. You know, there's a part of me that would be like, come on, J-Law, we can make you a conservative yet. Although I'm, I'm sure her politics are very progressive and annoying. And I'm OK with some level of that. I'm all right with uh, people that have their own beliefs and thoughts, but aren't too aggressive about mixing the platform they have for one thing, in this case, acting with their political uh, political prescriptions for the rest of us. But we know that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes down. They always they always try to. Oh, I'm at the Oscars. Let me make my political speech now. Right. It's not like they're generally separating these things out. So we'll see. J-Law, Clooney, probably some others out there are going to get in on the game, too. We'll see where all this goes, team. Um, We're going to talk to you about stress in a moment. Got some thoughts on it. Stay with. I like to share a little bit of wisdom that I've acquired in my 36 years on this earth. A lot of you are like, yeah, whippersnapper, double that number, and then I'll listen to your wisdom. But nonetheless, I think that I have picked up some things. Maybe I'm, I'm sharing it for my, my younger millennials, my not-yet-gray-bearded millennial listeners and, and some others. Uh, but one of the things that I've, I've come to understand as I get older is that it is on you as an individual to figure out what works for you in terms of managing stress. I don't think there's nearly enough that is talked about. There's nearly enough talk in our society about this specific issue. And when you look at any number of ailments out there, you see that stress is a direct contributor. And in some cases, I would I would argue the root cause of some of the problems that you see out there. I mean, stress uh, obviously goes cardiac events are related to stress and heart is heart disease and uh, and cancer are still you know, the, the two big uh, lethal diseases that we have to worry about in this country. Uh, but stress is in everyday life, and it's really important you get a sense of how you can manage it yourself. I just, I'm just i thinking about it because the average American, according to this study that was linked up on the Drudge Report today, the average American has 60 bad days a year. 
according to the survey. Which means you spend two months a year thinking that you're having a bad day. So it's it's more than just having a case of the Mondays, because that would be 52, right? <laughs> so it's so you're get you're averaging over. We, the American people, are averaging over one bad day each week. And 80% of those 24-hour periods that are ranked in this survey as stressful are from work-related stress, which I would have assumed. There's other stuff, too, that are, that are cited in the study. Illness, financial worries, feeling unclean or disheveled. Now, I've had some days where I felt unclean or disheveled in the office that ruined my day in my previous career before media. But I have to tell you that those were self-induced. Um, I had no one to blame but myself for wearing the same clothing to the office the next day. The headache that I may or may not have been nursing was the result of active decision-making on my part. And while I may have been in throbbing and lingering pain for the day at the office... In my earlier days, sometimes it was worth it. I'm just saying there were times when it was it was an even trade off. Right. It's like misery at work, keeping the waste paper basket close and still worth it. Still worth it. Not anymore. Now I'm like, oh, my gosh, somebody somebody tries to get me to drink more than two glasses of anything. I'm like, oh, God, come on. What's going on here? I know I'm a I'm a lightweight. But uh, it is what it is. You got you got to understand who you are. You know, know thyself to thine own self. Be true, said the buffoon. Polonius and Hamlet. People always think Hamlet said it. No. You know who you know who corrected us as a country on that one? Cher from Clueless. That's why we all know that line now. See? Very important movie. So anyway, so you get sixty seven percent of an individual's uh sixty seven percent rather of an individual's dissatisfaction on any given day was related to sleep. You gotta get enough sleep. This is you know, my parents told me this growing up all the time. And they were totally right. And I would stay up super late and then have to get up. And I remember going in, going into my high school and just feeling day after day like I was in some zombie state of about to fall over at any minute. It's because I didn't get enough sleep. I'd go to bed at like 2, 2 o'clock in the morning. Mom's listening. She's like, really? You're up that late? Yeah, sometimes I would just stay up. I'd, parents would go to bed. I'd like watch TV, watch HBO at 2 a.m. There was some interesting stuff on HBO at 2 a.m. So anyway, I would stay up super late. It's really, really bad for you. We all have this stress. We all have our uh, our Achilles heel, whether it's financial, whether it's just dealing with workplace situations or any number of things. How you manage it is one of the most important things in life. It really is. I mean, not important on an existential being a virtuous, worthwhile person level, but important on a how you're taking care of yourself. And I find that taking care of yourself is so very, very important. I used to think certain things were... Uh, maybe a little frivolous or, oh, no, no, no. You've got to find what it is. If you got to get some outdoors time to paint, if you got to watch birds, if you, the main thing they talk about in here is actually getting to the gym, which I know all of us are like, uh, gosh. I mean, I, I have the same thing. I'm like, hey, I got to go to the gym. I feel like a hamster on a wheel, a hamster that, you know, shouldn't have eaten so many bacon cheeseburgers this week. That all said, I've never left the gym, and I always try to remind myself of this. It's like one of the struggles that I have uh, day day to day. I've never gone to the gym and left the gym and been like, I wish I hadn't done that. And yet, and yet every day I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of tired. I got a lot of, I got a radio show to get ready for. I don't think I really want to do this. 
probably the most important single stress relief you can do. And, and in fact, uh, sleeping is, is critical, right? Sleeping is really, really, really essential. And that means also if you have to take catch-up naps the next day, 20-minute naps, they've done a lot of study on it, really, really important. You don't have to call it a siesta. We don't have to make this some big cultural event. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to involve uzo, uh, uzo and, like, lying out in the sun by the beach, although that sounds really nice, actually, now. But, like, it doesn't have to be. I'm thinking of Greek siesta. It's the only place I've ever really spent much time where they had that. But uh, the other thing that you should keep in mind is that for people, actually, who are older now, they are finding more and more that weight-bearing exercise is critical. Really good for your uh, for your sense of well-being, really good for your physical and for your mental health. I think that we haven't yet made this switch as a culture because people think of weight training generally as some guy who like has no neck, who's in the gym and is trying to lift some giant thing. But it doesn't have to be heavy weights, but it's just resistance training for older people. And so anybody 55 and above, resistance training means you're going to be, you know, limber and spry and energetic and, and on it longer. And the, the research on all this is very compelling. So, and it also is really helpful for dealing with stress. 30% of people in this survey also said they have a drink when they're really stressed. You know, sometimes, sometimes you got to sit back and have a, a glass of whatever your favorite is. You know, it's all about, it's all about moderation. I believe the ancient Greeks referred to it as metron, a state of perfect balance. They tried to achieve this in all things. Physically, philosophically, oh yes. Sometimes you just bring ancient Greece into a conversation because, and I think I just did that. But it is important to achieve balance. So just saying, we're all stressed, folks. We've all got our stuff, family stress, work stress, everything else. If you got less than 60 rough days a year, you're doing well, according to this study. Most folks have about 60 bad days a year. And regardless of whether it's 100 bad days or 10 bad days, how you deal with them is just critical because I'm telling you know because constructive ways of relieving stress means you'll have fewer bad days. I don't care what the science says on that. I just know that that's true. So some uh, some free uh, graybeard millennial life wisdom on the show today. We are going to run into a, a quick break and we'll be right back. Well, I tend not to talk about the weather here on the show because you got a lot of other radio stations that do that. But I'm just going to gloat for a second that it is uh, so gorgeous right now in New York City. I, I think it's in the high 60s right now. I mean, it is it is crazy warm in this town, uh, which for this time of year feels is, is very, uh, very, very unexpected. I'm hoping that wherever you're listening across the country, you also maybe took the chance to uh, go outside and see if you could uh, enjoy a little white zin. You know, yeah, it's 66 degrees here in New York. So, you know, across the country, I'm assuming it's got to be pretty warm in some places. I think, oh, yeah, we're getting crushed with like a a winter storm in a couple of days. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was all happy for a moment here. I was going to maybe go up to the roof of my building tonight and it also makes me want to make snarky remarks about global warming. One of the problems that I've always had, never mind the inaccuracies around the previous predictions and all the hysteria of people who are just so deeply, deeply concerned with global warming. I'm still flabbergasted. Fun word that we should throw around more. That when you ask somebody of the stature of, say, Melinda Gates of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
the richest people in the world or in the top two or three, I think sometimes, depending on how what kind of day Bezos is having, he may be number one. But among the very richest people in the world and you ask Bill and Melinda Gates what their biggest concern is, and they're trying to deal with uh, diseases like malaria and others. And sure enough, you'll find out that it is it is climate change that is their number one concern. I was speaking to a friend of mine about this earlier today. I, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> He's here, and I'm like, wow, people at that level with that access to uh, expertise and knowledge and information, and whew, sure enough. Uh, but it would be nice. The reason I bring this up is that much of the country would be in great shape if it got an average of two or three degrees a year warmer. People say, oh, the seas would rise. We got a lot of land. We'll be all right. Land has been shifting continuously, as we know, over time. And there is no such thing as a perfect uh, temperature. There is no such thing as global homeostasis. To bring back a word from anatomy class, which is your body trying to maintain an equilibrium. Homeostasis. It's fun to throw it out there sometimes. Like, hey, how you feeling? Eh, I hit my homeostasis today. Oh, oh, really? As a matter of fact, I did. Anyway, it's warm here. It's not global warming, but it would be fine with me if it were. Uh, so there you have it. All right, let's get to some. Let's get to some roll call, please. Roll call, Team Buck. Oh yeah, it's time for roll call. I love our uh, voiceover guy. His voice is awesome. Roll call. So let's get it going here. Uh, Daniel writes in with the following: Hey, Buck. Are there going to be more episodes of Shields High? The fourth episode was the last one I listened to back in January. I've been itching to hear more. Daniel, the answer is yes. The problem is there's just not enough buck to go around these days. I'm, I'm running ragged, as they say, trying to keep up with all my various responsibilities and obligations. And Shields High is a labor of love. Uh, I just put it out there because I like it and, I, and you have asked for it. And that's why we. it's an, it's an additional product that we've done here in the freedom hut and it's just out there for people to listen to and folks to enjoy and who believe in the brand i'm actually going to be speaking to a friend this week uh, someone i work with about whether we might be able to find an even better home for it on bucksexton.com and the idea being that then i could also add links and reading material and make it a really more fully interactive experience photos and or really paintings not (laughs) not photos of paintings right there's no photographs that I know of in the 15th century, at least. Uh, no photographs back then. And, uh, yeah, so thank you for your, your question about it. And I know I'm, I really enjoy doing it, too. But as you can imagine, it takes up quite a bit of time. And the more you guys spread it around, we look at the numbers, the more folks listen to it and, and share it and interest there is, the easier it is for me to ask the bosses here to let me devote time and, and resources to it. Uh, Glenn. Glenn is the next up at bat here. Netflix Amazon suggestion. Longmire is great, but have you tried Justified? Timothy Oliphant is the star, although the co-star, Walton Guggins, his character Boyd, is great. I think it is on Amazon Prime. Yes, I can tell you, Glenn, I have tried Justified. I got a few episodes in and did not finish it for reasons that I cannot think of right now. I probably just got distracted with something else. Um, but I've heard very good things, and what I saw was very good, so I'll probably go back and check it out again. It had a great pilot, which is so essential, both in getting a show made from a production standpoint and then in drawing people in 
to listen to it. Uh, next, we get Michael here with. Oh, but thank you. I would know for the uh, for the suggestion. Miss Molly and I are, are going back and forth now between the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I highly recommend, Brandon uh, and Mike. But Mike's not here right now in the room. Check. Have you seen it? No. I'm telling you. Net. You have Netflix, right? Yeah. Oh no, it's on Amazon Prime. Do you have Amazon Prime? No. See, that's the thing. Uh, I would recommend the marvelous Mrs. Maisel to any of you uh, listening. It's uh, it's fun for me, especially because a lot of it is filmed in and around places I know in New York City. Uh, then there's also Ozark, which I'm liking more than I thought I would. If you liked Breaking Bad, as I said, you have to check out Ozark. I really should get like Netflix to sponsor the show. I'm like a Netflix fiend. Old books, Netflix, and takeout food. That's pretty much the center of my fun wheelhouse. Uh, that's, that's what gets me going. Oh, and coffee, of course. Black Rifle Coffee. I feel like Garth sometimes in Wayne's World when he's got the spon- he's got all the sponsor gear on. Yeah, that's right. We won't bad any corporate sponsors. He's covered in Reebok, and that's uh, one of the great. Wayne's World is a great movie too. Um, but I do drink Black Rifle. I love it, and uh, I love coffee. Next up here is James. Um, I've been solving New York Times styled crosswords for about four decades. One of the most frequently used abbreviations uh, in the grids is NRA. Cluing comes off as Second Amendment Defenders, Warren LaPierre's organization, peace-loving group, etc. I've practically written in NRA over three to five, written in, pardon me, over three to five thousand times in the grids. That seems like a lot. So my question to you is, can I expect to see NRA reclude or use less often in the puzzles? Why can't the New York Times be more likely, more like the daily 20 square inches of decency, aplomb, thought-provoking, ingenuity, etc.? Uh, great job on your show, Buck and Shields High. James, I have a confession to make. I have never done a crossword puzzle in a newspaper, I think, ever. It's actually just not something I've ever done. So I have no knowledge, background, or insight to offer on this whatsoever. I'm just not a crossword puzzle guy. I did play some chess growing up, so I enjoyed chess. And I'm better at chess than I let on. I always downplay like I can barely play because I like to hustle people. You could call me a chess shark. That means that, you know, I wear like a shiny leather, a shiny leather vest and a pocket protector at the same time. Yeah, what's up? I'm a chess shark. Uh, but anyway, or I, was, I was thinking of one of those, those jackets that people used to wear in like the 70s that are, I don't know, is it vinyl? I don't know if it, whatever it is. I was trying to, like, like with the wide collar and the big chain and everything. What, leisure? Yeah, like a leisure. So I got a leisure shoe, well, <laughs> a leisure suit while I'm playing chess. So therefore, I also wear my pocket protector because I don't want to get ink stains in my shirt pocket. Yay. Uh, next up, we have uh, Jen, who is, oh, Jen is asking me if I can do an interview for her international TV news outlet. Well, um, I don't know, Jen. I just saw this now, so let me get back to you <laughs> in a few minutes. Uh, I don't even know what this is, what this is talking about. Uh, I'll have to check this. Sometimes this happens, folks. Producers reach out to you on Facebook, and they're like, "Hey, you want to come do?" The BBC tends to do that. So whenever I see the BBC writing me on Facebook, it's like, hey, "Hello, Mr. Sexton. Just wondering, if perhaps you could give us five minutes of your time to come on the radio show later. We're hoping you can give us a formal." Central Intelligence Agency perspective on the following. And I'm, uh, all BBC emails are read in my head in that voice. That's how I, I just assume that's how they go. Uh, so 
Oh, here we go. Paul. Paul's writing in to chide me a little bit. That's okay, Paul. You remember the team? You can. I want friendly and constructive criticism, too, just not all caps profane criticism. But Paul writes in in very, in very friendly manner. Change the narrative, Buck. Quit talking about the Russian collusion and start talking about the Trump economic success. Well, Paul, I certainly try to do that, and I will keep trying to do that. So let's just say that uh, I appreciate the helpful reminder. With that, my friends, Freedom Hut is closing up for the day. Thank you, as always, for being here. Until next time, which is tomorrow, Shields High.